Hello and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, French Creolizing, Edouard Glissant and the Creolité Movement. Seekers of fun in the sun will be excited to know that in this episode we are taking yet another trip to the islands of the Caribbean. More specifically, we are returning once again to the island of Martinique, which is known as Matinique, or with one less syllable, Matinique, in the version of French Creole spoken on the island. Inspired by the ideas of recent interview guest Ngugi Watsiongo, we might here ask, what does philosophizing look like in Martinican Creole? What would it mean for Martinican philosophical thought to use this language in place of the European colonial inheritance of French? We will consider some steps taken in the direction of answering this question in this episode, focusing on four Martinican thinkers, Edouard Brisson, Jean Benabé, Patrick Chamoiseau, and Raphael Confiant. Or really, our focus will be on Brisson. But as we will see, one of the most powerful ways to see his influence as a thinker is to consider his impact on the trio of Benabé, Chamoiseau, and Confiant. They are the Creolists, a term they used to capture something about Martinican and more broadly Caribbean identity that led them to oppose the Negritude movement that came before them. Also, while we will indeed consider how both Glisson and the Creolists thought about the potential for expressing Martinican thought in Creole, our focus will not actually be on Creole language alone, but rather on the broader concept of Creolization that Glisson elaborated as a way of thinking about Caribbean culture. As we will see, he both inspired the Creolists and was perhaps inspired by them. Yet he also maintained his distinctness from them, as Glissant never embraced the term Creolité as they did. Born in 1928, Glissant came of age during the time in which Aimé Césaire was making a big impact on the Martinican intellectual milieu and on Africana thought more generally. Glissant was also just a few years younger than another Martinican we have mentioned, by now countless times, namely Franz Fanon. The two of them were so close in age that you might wonder why we're only getting to Glissant now, having covered Fanon quite a few episodes ago. The answer is that Glissant's most significant output in prose was published during the last two decades of the 20th century, whereas Fanon's classic works appeared during the middle part of the century. But as with Fanon, Césaire's Negritude is important background for understanding Glissant. It was a spur to his thinking, and also a target of criticism against which he could react and elaborate his own view of things. As you'll hopefully remember, Negritude grew in part out of the friendship between Césaire and Léopold Senghor, who met when both were students in Paris in the 1930s. Senghor was from Senegal, and this friendship with an African was famously transformative for the West Indian Césaire. He and his wife, Suzanne Césaire, returned from Paris to Martinique in 1939, and from then until 1944, they taught at the Lycée Cholchère, thus serving as influential figures during the time that both Fanon and Glissant attended that high school. Both Fanon and Glissant have often been described as former students of Emin Césaire, but this seems to be incorrect, as reliable sources suggest neither of them actually got the chance to take a class from him. They were both fascinated by him nevertheless, and both were active in the campaign to elect him mayor of Fort de France in 1945. Glissant even participated in this effort, despite not yet being able to vote himself. The following year, 1946, 
Buisson left Martinique to go to Paris in order to study philosophy at the Sorbonne and ethnology at the Musée de l'Homme. His thesis in philosophy was supervised by Jean Val, who was best known for the pioneering studies he published in the 1920s and 30s on G.W.F. Hegel and Søren Kierkegaard, respectively. Glissant's thesis, entitled Discovery and Conception of the World in Contemporary Poetry, was completed in 1953. Among the contemporary poets discussed here by Glissant was, appropriately enough, Césaire. At the same time, Glissant was himself emerging as a poet. His first book of poems, A Field of Islands, was published the same year he completed his thesis. By 1956, the year that the first Congress of Black Writers and Artists was held in Paris, Buisson had published two more books of poetry and a strikingly poetic book of prose entitled Son of Consciousness, which has been described as a kind of self-ethnography, reflecting on the experience of coming to France as a Martinican. It was therefore natural for him to attend the first Congress as part of the Martinican delegation, along with none other than Césaire and Fanon. He was also with them at the Second Congress, which took place in Rome in 1959, although unlike Césaire and Fanon, who worked out ideas crucial to their thought at both conferences, Glissant did not deliver a paper at either event. He did, however, publish an essay in the journal Présence Africaine in 1957, in which he reflected on the importance of the First Congress. The essay's title is The Black Novelist and His People, and it provides an interesting window into the development of his thought. The scope of the essay is pan-African, considering the history of the novel in Africa, as well as the various parts of the African diaspora. Glissant argues that the novel has suffered from the political duty weighing on black novelists to demand change, which comes at the expense of a freer exploration of the cultural richness of the black world. For him, the first Congress helped show the way forward out of this impasse. One cannot help but see this early Glissant as influenced by negritude, especially as espoused by Césaire, when he writes approvingly that the conference noted the multiplicity of Negro cultures, each of which has its own characteristics, but also studied the general traits of what can be called a Negro-African civilization, as unmonotonous as possible, but real nevertheless. Glissant entered himself into the ranks of black novelists by publishing, the following year, his first novel, known in English translation as The Ripening. Its French title is La Réserve, referring to a river in Martinique that flows through La Montagne, Glissant's hometown. The novel depicts a group of young activists plotting the murder of a government official, and it is set in 1945 during the time leading up to Césaire's election. The novel won a prestigious literary award, the Prix Renaudon, bringing Glissant increasing fame as a writer. He would go on to win a different award, the Prix Charles Veillon, for his next novel, The Fourth Century, which was published in 1964. In between those two novels, however, Glissant turned to political activity, and here we see an important interruption in his pattern of support for Césaire and his projects. With fellow Martinican Daniel Buchmann and Albert Beville of Guadeloupe, both of them noteworthy creative writers in their own rights, Glissant founded the Front Antillo-Guyanais pour l'Autonomie, or FAGA. As we discussed in our episode on Césaire, the Negritude poet had used his position as a representative in the French parliament to bring about, in 1946, the departmentalization of the Caribbean colonies of Martinique, Guadeloupe, and French Guiana. That is, these territories changed, at least in a legal sense, from being colonies to being integral parts of France. Glissant and his fellow activists rejected this outcome in favor of the goal of autonomy from France, which would allow integration with the rest of the Caribbean, that is, the non-French part. 
Nick Nesbitt has pointed out that in order to appreciate the relationship between culture and politics in Vincent's thought, we should pay more attention to a text that emerged from a conference promoting the Front's goals, the title of which we would translate as The French Antilles and French Guiana in the Time of Decolonization. Glissant proclaims in his contribution to the text that the world is shrinking, remaking itself, and the Antilles are in an ideal situation to promote the contact of cultures. Thus, he argues, if the peoples of Martinique, Guadeloupe, and French Guiana become free to organize their societies and their aspirations, they will testify to this contact of cultures in a world dominated by complex cultures. They will be able to realize for the first time values freely chosen and determined by themselves. Because of his participation in this separatist cause, Vincent was banned from returning to Martinique from 1961 to 1965. The Front did not survive its suppression by the French government, and another blow came with the death of Albert Beville, who was also known by his pen name, Paul Niger, in a 1962 airplane crash. When Glissant was finally able to return home to Martinique in 1965, his activism expressed itself thereafter in literary and scholarly, rather than in any traditionally political forms. He created a journal of the social sciences, called Acoma, named after a kind of tree that can be found in Martinique, and he founded the Martinique Institute of Studies, or IME as it was known by its French initials, to bring more educational and cultural activity to the island. In 1969, he published Poetic Intention, which can be counted as his second book of essays after Son of Consciousness. But like that earlier book, the reflections on poetry and identity in Poetic Intention are expressed in a very dense poetic style. The 1970s found him publishing another novel, another book of poetry, and it's also the time during which his play, Monsieur Toussaint, was finally brought to life. As its title suggests, the play is Glissant's take on that event of global historical importance that must also be recognized as particularly significant from the perspective of the Francophone Caribbean, the Haitian Revolution. One of its most important themes is the link between Toussaint Louverture's belief in the values and potential of the French Revolution and the tragic ending of his life in a French prison. First published back in 1961, the play was performed in a radio version in 1971. After Glissant spent some time revising the play to make it more theatrical, a revision that included notably weaving some Creole phrases into the dialogue, it was finally brought to the stage in Paris in 1977. All that we've described so far would be enough to make Lisson an interesting figure in the history of Africana thought, but it was not until 1981 that he published the book that cemented his place as a great thinker in this tradition. Its French title is Le Discours Antillais. It has never yet been published in its entirety in English translation, so a partial effort by J. Michael Dash, entitled Caribbean Discourse, Selected Essays, published in 1989, remains perhaps the most popular way for English-speaking readers to come to Glissant. What they find there is a wide-ranging series of thoughts on Martinican and Caribbean identity, poetically expressed, as always, but arguably more straightforward and structured in comparison with Glissant's earlier books of prose. There are four important concepts featured in the book, that we would like to highlight, Caribbeanness, Relation, Creolization, and Opacity. Caribbeanness is how Dash quite reasonably rendered Glissant's term Antianité. This is widely viewed as Glissant's signature conceptual contribution, and as his way of opposing and seeking to replace Negritude. Indeed, when he contrasts Antianité with Negritude in Le Discours Antillais, in a section that is unfortunately not translated in the Selected Essays volume, 
He refers to negritude as a kind of Negro asceticism. Its limits, he says, were revealed by Jean-Paul Sartre's treatment of the movement as an anti-racist racism destined to dissolve itself after serving its purpose. Yet, Clisson's endorsement of antianité as an alternative is not formulated in terms of diametric opposition to negritude. Rather, he presents the two as continuous. He treats both negritude and antianité in the Martinican context as responses to the underdevelopment of local culture as a result of the island's economically and culturally dependent condition. Having described negritude as the first systematic reaction to this situation, he writes, the second reaction, which proceeds from the first, conceives for the entire Caribbean the convergence of re-routings in our actual place. This is what I have called the theory of antianite. It has as its ambition continuing on by simultaneously enlarging the African dimension, which changes in finding itself here, and the root of language, which reinforces itself in multiplying. Following up on the point of language, he claims that despite appearances, his use of French can be compared to what other Caribbean authors have done with other languages, English in the case of fellow poet and theorist Derek Walcott of St. Lucia, and Spanish in the case of Nicolas Guyen of Cuba. He tells us, It matters little to me that they do not speak Creole. We speak in different appearances the same language. What Glissant does here is bind negritude and antianité together as forms of rerouting in response to the colonial condition of the French Caribbean. He even emphasizes the importance of the African dimension of Martinican culture in a way that seems quite friendly to negritude. But there is an important difference. Whereas negritude looked to Africa, antianité means rerouting in the diversity and unity of the Caribbean. Emphasis is placed on the transformed and continuously transforming character of the African dimension in the Caribbean context. Glissant's celebration of the linguistic multiplicity of the Caribbean is emblematic of this contrast to negritude, many roots, not just one, something Glissant likes to compare to the root system of the mangrove tree. Arguably, one of the most difficult, but perhaps simply the most flexible of Glissant's famous concepts is what he calls relation, or relation, with a capital R. Its importance is hidden in the Selected Essays volume, as Dash translates the term in a wide variety of ways. For example, a section of the book entitled Poétique de la Relation is translated by Dash as cross-cultural poetics. At one point in this section, Glissant calls antianité, or Caribbeanness, an intellectual dream that could preserve Caribbean peoples from the intolerable evils of nationalism by introducing them to capital R, relation. We can see from this that the notion of relation has an ethical character, but it is also descriptive of circumstances, as demonstrated by Glissant's rhetorical question and answer, what is the Caribbean in fact a multiple series of relationships? That last phrase is, in French, multi-relation. The concept of relation thus includes the descriptive fact of things being related in various ways, as well as the ethical insight that we ought to embrace interconnectedness rather than strive for separation or purity. Let us now turn to a term that has become deeply associated with Glissant, especially for those of us in the English-speaking world, creolization. Indeed, there's a 1995 essay by Glissant, Creolization in the Making of the Americas, that provides one of the most accessible and brief introductions to his thought available in English. Glissant certainly did not invent the word creolization, which was already in use long before he began using it. It came up naturally in linguistic research, where it referred, of course, to the formation of such languages as Martinique and Creole. 
beginning at some point far earlier in the modern era, there was also the common but locally varying usage of the term Creole to refer to certain people, sometimes those of European descent, sometimes those of African descent, and sometimes particularly those who are mixed, but in whichever case, it generally referred to those who were born in the Americas. This made possible the use of Creolization in a broader anthropological sense, providing a way to talk about the emergence of new cultures within the unique conditions of the colonized Americas. One Africana thinker who should be mentioned in this context is Kamau Braithwaite, the Barbadian poet and scholar who published a book in 1971 entitled The Development of Creole Society in Jamaica, 1770-1820. With reference to Jamaica, he here treated creolization as the social process by which a new society was formed, one made up of newcomers to the landscape and cultural strangers to each other, one group dominant, the other legally and subordinately slaves. Skipping ahead for a moment to 1989, when Bernabé, Chamoiseau, and Confiant published their manifesto, L'Eloge de la Creolité, available in English as In Praise of Creoleness, they unsurprisingly emphasized the importance of creolization as the source of creoleness, as they understand it. As it is widely known that they were influenced by Glissant, it is natural to assume that this influence includes their understanding of creolization. There is, however, a bit of mystery here, one that Shireen Lewis has pointed out in her excellent book, Race, Culture, Identity, Francophone West African and Caribbean Literature and Theory from Negritude to Creolité. As Lewis notes in Glissant's 1981 book, Le Discours Antillais, and even before that in 1969's Poetic Intention, he articulated ideas he would later associate with the term creolization using the term métissage, which means mixture. Traditionally, métissage refers especially to mixture of the biological kind, and thus it is common to translate it into English as miscegenation. Glissant's use of the term clearly resisted a biological understanding of mixture, though. Instead, he wanted to promote an understanding of Caribbean identity as culturally mixed, and thus as an example of relation. He wrote, If we speak of mixed cultures, like Caribbean culture, for example, it is not so that we can define a category in itself that will thus oppose itself to other categories, like pure cultures, but rather, it is so that we can affirm that today, a new approach to the infinity of relation is opening itself up to the human mind as a kind of consciousness and a kind of project, as a theory and as a reality. Biological mixture has been part of every people's story, he thinks, but it is a new thing to let go of the ideal of a singular point of origin that safeguards a people's identity and embrace the jumble of mixture instead. The translation in the Selected Essays volume is again confusing here. Dash uses creolized, where we said mixed, and creolization, where we said relation. More generally, those who have gotten to know Glissant through the Selected Essays volume may be surprised to discover that all the talk of creolization one finds there translates either talk of relation or talk of mixture in the original French. Why? We're not sure, but there is a further twist. By 1990, the year after the publication of both In Praise of Creolness by the Creolists and Dash's translation of Glissant's essays, we find Glissant himself using the French term creolisation and distinguishing its meaning from that of métissage. He argues, in fact, that talk of mixture is not the right way to capture what has gone on in the Caribbean, and creolisation is the right way. He does this in a book with a familiar title. It is called Poétique de la Relation, just like that section from Le Discours Antillais. In this book we read, what took place in the Caribbean, which could be summed up in the word realization, approximates the idea of relation for us as nearly possible. 
It is not merely an encounter, a shock, a metissage, but a new and original dimension allowing each person to be there and elsewhere, rooted and open, lost in the mountains and free beneath the sea, in harmony and errantry. Creolization, Poisson argues, is limitless metissage, for while it is possible for mixture to result in a newly concentrated substance, born of the combination of two different things, creolization is like light in diffracting and always generating more change. It is, in this sense, arguably like some of his concepts, impossible to pin down. Lewis sees Glissant's new distinction here as a case of counter-influence, crediting the Creolists with having made an impact on Glissant's thinking about race, culture, and identity by swaying him away from the idea of mixture towards Creolization as the ultimate metaphor for the fluidity of human culture. Before we say more about the conception of Creolization in praise of Creolness, there's one more concept from Le Discours Antillais that should not be overlooked. On the book's opening page, we find this striking phrase, we demand the right to opacity. Glissant goes on to speak of challenging the West, or as he prefers to call it, the Occident, for it is not a place but a project, by opposing its imposition of the ideal of transparent universality with the counter-ideal of a deafening multiplicity of diversity. Living as we do in a world greatly concerned with the meaning of diversity, this is an idea we ought to take seriously. It comes up again in his 1990 book, Poetics of Relation, in a chapter called For Opacity, in which Glissant suggests that the right to be different is insufficient for diversity if we are still subject to the demand for transparency. He argues at length that some level of opacity, the condition of not being able to be understood completely, is necessary for a world in which we all properly respect and value each other. It's interesting to compare Glissant in this regard to another thinker of Caribbean origin, Audrey Lord. Would she see Glissant's attempt to go beyond difference to opacity as a rejection of the way she values difference, or as a particular way of spelling out the value of difference as she understands it? Let us now turn to the matter of Glissant's influence on that trio of Martinicans who entered the conversation in 1989. They first presented their collective elegy to a rather flabbergasted audience at a Caribbean cultural festival held in Paris in May of 1988. The next year, they published L'Eloge de la Créolité, or In Praise of Creolness. A sign of its quick and impressive impact is its swift appearance in a French-English edition, which came out in 1990. The eldest of the three authors, and the one who was no longer with us, was Jean Benabé. Born in 1942, he brought not only age, but academic authority to the trio. In 1982, the year after Glissant published his discourse, Benabé achieved a doctoral degree in linguistics with a thesis on the grammar of the French creoles of Martinique and Guadeloupe. He made a career out of taking creole seriously. He also began publishing novels later on in life, but his two collaborators are better known for their creative writing. The most famous member of the trio is Patrick Chamoiseau, who won the prestigious Prix Goncourt for his 1992 novel Texaco. Raphael Confian has been called the enfant terrible of the three, to keep the French expressions coming in this episode on the expression of Africana ideas in French. He wrote novels too, but for our purposes, his most important book would be his scathing critique of Césaire, titled Aimé Césaire, A Paradoxical Journey, published in 1993. The boldness of the trio's position is clear from the first line of their manifesto. Neither Europeans, nor Africans, nor Asians, we proclaim ourselves Creoles. They go on to suggest that this new form of self-identification will help to address a problem identified on the following page, 
Caribbean literature does not yet exist. They do not mean to deny that there are writers in the Caribbean, of course. What they find to be lacking is the kind of dynamic interaction between these writers and a home audience that would make for a flourishing literary tradition. In the absence of such a relationship, Caribbean writing is, as they put it, fundamentally stricken with exteriority. In other words, in the case of a place like Martinique, writing is conditioned by French values and ways of seeing and directed toward this external point. Like Glissant, they situate themselves in relation to negritude. Though they will go on to criticize this tradition, they begin with the heartfelt affirmation, we are forever Césaire's sons. They credit Césaire's negritude with restoring black dignity and opening the way for Caribbeanness. That being said, they are severe in their criticism of negritude, arguing that it replaced the illusion of Europe by an African illusion. The illusion of African identity for Martinicans is, in the view of the Creolists, similar to the European illusion in involving an orientation toward what is exterior to the Caribbean. In their view, it was Glissant who dispelled this illusion with his vision of Caribbeanness. When Bernabé, Chamoiseau, and Confiance spell out their understanding of Creolness, Glissant's values are clearly in evidence. They claim, for example, that Creolness is an annihilation of false universality, of monolingualism, and of purity. This invites the question, given this clear influence, why speak of Creolness rather than simply supporting and extending talk of Caribbeanness? Why prefer Creolité to Antillanité? Unlike Negritude, they do not see Caribbeanness as a trap to be escaped, but neither does our trio view it as identical to Creolness. The two are rather complementary. Explaining this leads them to the topic of creolization. They use that term to describe a social and cultural process that happens both in the Caribbean and elsewhere. It happened, for example, when Europeans, Africans, and Asians ended up together in the islands of the Indian Ocean near Africa, like the Seychelles, Mauritius, and Réunion. Note that the last of these, like Martinique, became a department of France in 1946. There too, we find a mix of linguistic, religious, cultural, culinary, architectural, medical, etc. practices, a mix that is non-harmonious and unfinished. The Martinican thinkers therefore argue that we can distinguish between Caribbeanness, which is specific to one region, and the more general phenomenon of Creoleness. On the other hand, they also claim that it is through the embrace of Creoleness that they will crystallize Caribbeanness, the ferment of a Caribbean civilization. Central to this goal is the embrace of Creole language. According to Bernabé, Chamoiseau, and Confiant, the tragedy of Martinican writing is linked to what they call the linguistic castration that many writers experienced in childhood by being forbidden to use Creole. It is significant that another of the trio's heroes, alongside Gaisson, is Franck Etienne, a Haitian writer. In 1975, he published Des Avis, the first novel written in Haitian Creole. As they note, this was the same year that Glissant published his third novel, Malmort, which was written in French, but nevertheless, in their view, captured Caribbean reality in a newly powerful way, through the alchemy of language, the structure, the humor, the themes, the choice of characters, the preciseness. In this way, 1975 was a landmark year for Creoleness. Glissant began the 1980s by moving back to Paris and obtaining a doctoral degree in sociology from the Sorbonne with a thesis that formed the basis for Le Discours Antillais. He then spent most of the decade serving as the editor of UNESCO's journal, the UNESCO Courier, before beginning in 1988 a new adventure, 
living and teaching in the United States of America. He accepted a position in the Department of French Studies at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, coming to know especially the southern part of the United States. This is where he was based when In Praise of Creolness was published. He gave an interview to Canadian writer and literary critic Lise Gauvin in 1991, in which she asked him to clarify his take on the work. He responded by acknowledging that the Creolists were evidently influenced by his writings, but then cautioning that there seemed to him some misunderstanding of his ideas on their part. Perhaps most fundamentally, they seemed not to have learned the correct lesson from his attempt to go beyond negritude. His explanation is worth quoting at length. What I criticized in negritude was its definition of being, negro being. I believe that being is no more. Being was a grand, noble, unmeasurable invention of the West, and particularly of Greek philosophy. This definition of being, very soon in Western history, resulted in all sorts of sectarianisms, metaphysical absolutes, and fundamentalisms whose catastrophic effects we see today. I believe we need to say that there is nothing more than beings, that is to say, particular existences that correspond and enter into conflict, and that we must abandon the pretension of defining being. This philosophical distinction served, for Brisson, as the basis for his distance from the Creolists. He recognized creolite as a definition of Creole being, whereas it had become important for him to see creolization as a perpetual movement of cultural and linguistic impenetrability that does not result in a definition of being. It was, for him, as we noted, impossible to pin down, so he distanced himself from what he saw as the Creolists' attempt to stick a pin in it with their invention of creolite. Though he rejected any reduction of the flux of things to a general and static definition of being, Puissant was open to the idea that creolite could be a necessity of the moment, just as negritude had once been necessary. After all these years, he still appreciated the importance of Césaire and Senghor, describing negritude as having been vitally important for the defense of African values and the black diaspora. Puissant allowed that creolite might similarly be a vital concept for defending the creole language and culture but he ended his answer by insisting on the need to think more globally. The world is creolizing. All cultures are creolizing at this moment through their contact with each other. The ingredients vary, but the principle is the same. Today, there is no more singular culture that can pretend to be pure. Here, Bisson indicates that the creolist understanding of creolness as global was simply not global enough. As we saw, they linked the peoples of the Caribbean to peoples living on islands in the Indian Ocean, in order to explain creolness as something exceeding the geographic bounds of the Caribbean. But they still associated the phenomenon with only certain parts of the world and the special histories of those regions. For Buisson, a proper understanding of Caribbean creolization leads directly to recognition that the entire world is undergoing this same process of cultural interpenetration. This means that the creolists missed the point by embracing creolness as a distinct identity. And this was, ironically, an attempt to make the mixture of creolization into a new kind of purity. Similar criticism of creolite has come from Maurice Condé, perhaps the most celebrated female writer to emerge from the Francophone Caribbean. Born Maurice Boucolon in 1934 in Guadeloupe, she studied in Paris and married an actor from Guinea named Mamadou Condé. This led to her spending the 1960s living in various countries in West Africa, and experiencing firsthand the tumult of that decade in that region. After meeting her second husband, an Englishman named Richard Philcox in Senegal, she returned to France in the 1970s, and this is where she became an accomplished scholar, playwright, and novelist, 
with Phil Cox, her husband, the translator of her work into English. By the time she commented on In Praise of Creolness in the 1990s, she was living and teaching in the United States. Looking at the work through these well-traveled eyes, Condé rejected what she saw as an attempt to lay down rules of authenticity that could constrict the West Indian writer. She criticized their examples of Creolness as tedious, and sounding very much like Lissant, she retorted, West Indians should be as changing and evolving as the islands themselves. Lissant kept evolving as a thinker, too, devising more and more new concepts to capture Caribbean cultural life as well as human existence more generally. Some prose works we would discuss if we had more time are 1997's Traité de tout monde, or Treatise of the Whole World, and his last book before dying in 2011, which was Philosophie de la Relation, or Philosophy of Relation, published in 2009. The central theme of that final book is the difference between archipelagic and continental thinking, that is, thinking that is fragmented, like the archipelago of islands in the Caribbean, versus that which aspires to be systematic, like the wholeness of a continent. Professional philosophers have begun to take these ideas seriously, and none more so than our guest next time, John Drabinsky. But Drabinsky's book, Lusson and the Middle Passage, is inspired above all by the opening pages of 1990's Poetics of Relation, where Glisson reflects on how slaving ships and the Atlantic Ocean represent kinds of abyss at the very beginning of Afro-Caribbean consciousness. We will discuss this and other aspects of Glisson's thought next time with John Drabinsky here on The History of Africana Philosophy. Mm-hmm.